Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I want to show a chart now which folds into equities, folds into commodities, folds into bonds as well before we bring in our two esteemed guests. This surprised me. This is U.S. trade-weighted real broad dollar. This is the broadest measurement of the dollar with strong dollar up one standard deviation over the 50-year chart, the plaza cord way over on the left side. So it is a strong dollar to say the least, which is a good entry point on equities with Edmund Shing of BMP Paribas, their global head of equity and derivative strategy. And Marilyn Watson joins us today of BlackRock, their head of global fundamental fixed income strategy. Marilyn, currency dynamics and fixed income really affect the coupon right now. To begin with Euro in this, this London hour, what do you do on currency as you try to find coupon in Europe? <clears throat> Yeah, that's right. So if you're a European investor, Euro domiciled investor, then it's really important to be aware of the hedging costs. And I think if you're looking for coupons, then we do see, um, you know, potential RV opportunities in Euro credit. We see opportunities um, also, you know, elsewhere in Asia and also in dollar denominated assets as well. But it's really important to be aware yeah. of the carry you get, but then also the hedging cost back because it's about 3%, which is a right. lot. So I think it's very, very important to be very aware of when you're trying to looking at that coupon, what you, the end investor actually gets back after the hedging cost. Edmund, maybe you don't have the hedging costs in equities, but you certainly have the current currency translation as well. What does strong dollar do to U.S. multinationals, or is it too small a part to play? Well, you can't say it's too small, Tom, because if you look at the S&P 500 index, something like 40% of earnings are from overseas. So clearly it has, it has an impact. Um, maybe not as much an impact as, it, as currency does in Asia or in the US, but an impact nonetheless. Of course, I think the real issue for equities is not going to be just the currency by itself. It's going to be much more where the currency goes. And I think it's going to be much more about really the debt mountain that the US has to deal with in the coming years. And what does that do to the currency? Um, I think that's more of an issue right. in terms of stability going forward. So what does that do to the currency? Well, I think it makes the currency go down. I think Tom's po pointed out the fact that the dollar's way high. OK, fine. And everyone's been very bullish the dollar. Well, we're not. We're pretty bearish the dollar because we think eventually the debt mountain comes to bear. Someone's got to buy this U.S. debt. Remember, they're running massive budget deficits. I, I love the way everyone complains about Italy in the Italian budget deficit. The U.S. has got a massive budget deficit. It's only going to get worse. Trump is not doing anything to help that. And they think that everyone's going to buy their rules, debt. to be fair. Yeah, but the thing is, they still need people to buy their debt, Francine. Someone has to buy it. Yeah, the treasury are sellers. Who's the buyer? Not the Russians, not the Chinese. Oh, good luck. The domestic U.S. investor? Let's see. Let's see if they absorb okay. all of the debt. Okay, Marilyn, where do you see dollar going from here? Yeah, so over the medium term, we also see the dollar depreciating from here. Um, as It's been very strong at the moment. Uh, we did see a bit of a pause after the Fed, um, particularly Jay Powell, was uh, suggesting that they might be on, you know, pausing for extended periods of time. Yeah. Um, and I think as we go forward, um, you know, the U.S. is in the late cycle of the business cycle as well. So our view is also that over the medium term, at least, the dollar will also depreciate. Okay, what happens if if we have a trade truce, does it, does it mean Ed, that actually the Fed is back at hiking? No. 
far too early to say. I think the Fed will leave it a few months. Look, they're not in a big rush. Core inflation is not going up that quickly, despite the rise in wage inflation. And they're also, of course, in the US, don't forget, helped by the, the oil price. The oil price on, has a lagged effect to inflation. It was coming down, remember, in December, quite considerably. And the feed-through, therefore, to core inflation is going to be somewhat negative rather than positive, at least for the next few months. So they have a little window where they can sit and do not very much in particular. Marilyn, where is BlackRock on the concept of lower for longer? We had Gary Schilling on yesterday, <laughs> arguably the best two-decade call on lower interest rates, et cetera. But but where is BlackRock's formal statement on how low and how long we stay with this rate regime? Yeah, so um, I, I also think that they're going to stay, you know, lower for a lot longer. And, you know, our core view at the moment is that we'll have a pause, at least for the first half of this year. Um, as Edmund said, um, you know, I agree with his statement that the, the Fed is going to be very patient. They're in no rush to do anything. And then when you see the development of inflation, when you see the development of uh, global factors, global trade, when you see the development of the U.S. economy and activity, then I think potentially in the second half of the, the, the year, you could see a further hike or you could see a continued pause. But I certainly think in the US, and if you look globally as well, if you look at the ECB, um, you know, they're in no rush to do anything either. Um, you know, the Bank of England you know, wants to shore up the economy and we think that you know, on the margin at some point they will raise rates. But I think you know, broadly when you look at the global economy, when you look at developed markets, we, we are in a completely different regime to the past, and we are going to see rates much lower for longer. No. Um, and the end point is also going to be much, much lower. To James Bullard and his phrase of regime change, it is a most interesting time. Edmund Schick on the markets, BMP. Perry Bob Marilyn Watson on fixed income as well with BlackRock. Joining us, a man whose career has taken him from the Fed to the IMF, from Citigroup, and now with the Milken Institute, the chief economist. It is Bill Lee, and he joins us from Washington. Good morning to you, Bill. Morning, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. So help me out, as always, to draw a distinction between noise and news, substance and happy talk. What do we have this morning? The most substantive thing you just mentioned is the fact that the dollar has been gaining stronger and stronger over the last week or so. And th think about it. Interest rate parity told us that if, when the Fed told us we we're supposed to pause, the dollar was supposed to weaken. Instead, what has happened? It tells us that interest rate parity models don't work. And I think that the traders around the world are learning that the hard way. One thing do you have to keep in mind is that the U.S. continues to be a magnificent global capital. And everyone in the world wants to come here, despite the fact that we have rising deficits, rising debt-to-GDP ratios. And as I was saying to Tom earlier, one of the things that we have to be cautious about is keep things in perspective. All this worrying about the U.S. is like worrying about pimples on a teenager's face when the rest of the world has cancer. And, and, and I think we have to re remember Brexit and even the, ch the problems within China, all the debt problems they're having, is demonstrating to us that yeah. the leverage is being put to use in the U.S. much better than it's being put to use in the rest of the world. There is a belief, Bill, that if we get some kind of trade deal, it will go a long, long way to curing the world's ills. It will be some kind of panacea. Uh, I take it from you, Bill, you don't share that belief. Well, actually, um, strangely enough, I, I take that view, but it, on, a, on a much uh, longer-term basis. We've had social problems and political problems tearing apart Europe and, and Middle East and, and 
Asia for, for centuries. And, and I think one of the things that the Milken formula tells us is prosperity comes with the use of capital in, in the, a smart way to bolster social capital. In other words, when we get the global economy and regional economies to grow faster, a lot of the social problems start to go away, at least become less important. And I think that's the formula that, that is being used around the world now uh, by, by us when we have these regional conferences as we're doing in the Middle East right now. We're trying to get everyone to focus on strengthening social capital by using financial capital to build up the, the, the global economy and to build up growth. Increasingly though, Bill, that's not what I see from many nations uh, around the world. In fact, what I do see is an urge to limit the flow of capital in many ways, depending on where that capital yeah. is coming from. Is that of concern to you? And do you fold that into this trade discussion? That scares the hell out of me, John, because one of the things that I, uh, when I was at the IMF, it was absolutely forbidden to talk about global uh, capital controls, right? Capital controls were an anathema because you wanted global to freely flow around the world. Now people at the IMF are getting promotions for writing papers like the appropriate use of capital controls in small open economies when capital inflows threaten to overwhelm domestic financial infrastructure. Wow, what a change of IMF philosophy in the last 10 years. And I think that reflects the growing sense of, of, of not being able to build the appropriate infrastructure and capital markets that are resilient enough to, to strong flows in and out. And I think that's the, the problem that, that's not being faced by my profession, the economics profession and the financial uh, market participants out there. What are the flows into the United States? The flows from the rest of the world is, is essentially safe, safe haven flows. I think one of the things that people are afraid of is the fact that oh, – take China, for example. Every rich person I know in China wants a back door out. They want to put their kids in Australia for education. They want to put their kids in the UK and, and, and in the US. And, and I think this need for a back door shows you that the, the world is really very unstable. And where are they going? They're coming to the US. And I think the US represents – a lot of social tensions, and there are a lot of problems that you just talked about with, with Gideon. Um, uh, but, but one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that we are a very dynamic economy. And even, even with that dynamism, the social problems become lessened when we are able to grow fast. And I think one of the things that has hurt us since 2008 is this very, very sluggish recovery that's been taking place. Right now, we have some possibility right. of having sustained growth. But as a practicing economist, I mean, I know you're doing bigger, broader things with Milken, and as a practicing economist, what's your terminal run rate of, of U.S. GDP? I mean, some of these shops, uh, Bill Lee, have really grim statistics. John Farrell, there's a couple under 2%, right? Yeah. It's a terminal run rate. What's Bill Lee's terminal run rate well, for the as, U.S. As a, economy? Uh, well, I, I, I keep my, 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 my union card as a Ph.D. economist by saying, well, you know, <laughs> na the natural growth rate is limited by population and productivity growth. And, and, and the, where, the where I have a bit of more optimism than a lot of the shops around that have the, the one handle on U.S. growth is the possibility that U.S. productivity will start to strengthen with appropriate use of capital invested in the right uh, right. Uh, 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 assets. And I think the things that we have been having trouble with is that debt assets encourage entrepreneurs to stay with continuing uh, uh, existing technologies because what does the debt holder want? Their money back. But equity capital represents the possibility of, of, of shooting for the moon 
and 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 swinging for those like, technologies that will raise productivity, raise productivity growth. And and I think um, as financing starts to resort more to equity, especially through private equity, yeah, I think we're going to see more of that. Bill, just to tease some of this out, essentially the the equation you offered was the the recipe for potential growth in America. Where do you see potential GDP? And I should add to this, I think the thing that markets and market participants worry about is just the rate of change from above potential, well above potential, three, four percent, back down to two, how quickly we get there and whether we overshoot to the downside as well. Yeah, the, the, the possibility of a soft landing has escaped the Fed for, for many decades, and, and yeah. I have to be guilty of that as myself. Um, but, but I think one of the, this is the best chance we have of getting a soft landing because we don't have any of the imbalances that normally cause the Fed to, to really spike interest rates because inflation is running out of hand. Uh, structural, um, structural forces that are keeping disinflation in the front of every FOMC member is one thing that is, I think, keeping the Fed from – resorting to the kind of um, stop-go policies that are, have killed every past recovery. Are, are those structural forces simply technology? I mean, you mentioned earlier, Billy, the effect of Amazon and pricing is they, you know, they, they essentially take retail to a perfectly competitive microeconomics. But the bottom line is technology is the great unmentionable here. Should the IMF, should World Bank, should the others be doing more in the study of these profound technological effects? I think the IMF and, and World Bank economists, even Fed economists, um, should get some dosage of private sector experience. <laughs> and, I, and I have to say, I, I, I have been blessed by my years at City because I have seen how uh, the markets misappropriate capital. And I think one of the things that, 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 uh, that t- productivity models go for is what is the long trend and how is the long trend changing? And my God, the, last, the next guy who uses an HP filter to estimate uh, potential GDP, I'm going to bash him in the head because that's completely ignoring <laughs> how capital's being used. Bill, I would love to see that. Yeah. <laughs> you just bashing people in the head. We can, we'll bring we him up to New York. We could keep Bill Lee and, in the know. studio and every time an economist says something he doesn't like, yeah. he could come over On the and other smack, hand, smack him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Lee, thank you so much for the Milken uh, Institute for getting us started. We are thrilled to bring you, with his kindness, every new issue of Foreign Affairs magazine. Get the physical copy, reasonable subscription, and it is just filled with insight. This month is a twisted view on the global new nationalism, but with a real American angle. Jill Laporte leads it off with a controversial walk through our nationalistic history. Stacey Abrams is in there in many other worries as well. I thought Michael Mandelbaum, Gideon, on, on Europe was really quite good. I mean, we talk about nationalism in Europe. It's an extraordinary original nationalism, isn't it? It is. You know, one of the greatest questions we have right now, and this goes back to what you were talking about with uh, Bill Lee in the last segment, is how much the social concerns are related to economic concerns, not just in question of growth, but also distribution. And so in Europe, where you've had uh, not much progress in a lot of places, you see social divisions and social groups uh, coming up and trying to get their own and pulling their own back from the, the larger community of the EU because they don't feel they benefited from it. And that's really the question. It's not just growth, but also the distribution of growth and getting people to feel like they profit, getting all members of the community to feel like they're part of a national and, economy. And John Max Boot writing in the Washington Post, he's got the all-in tax average take in Sweden yeah. of $25,000, and in the U.S. it's $15,000. To get against point, though, it's this word feeling. It's getting you to feel 
like you are participating what is this, in the a sensitive growth. part of well, the show? Well, no, I think it's important because, you know, undoubtedly the data tells you that over the last 10 years, the world is richer. There is greater prosperity. Poverty has been Xavier reduced. Salah Martin is the best on that. He would strongly endorse that. And, and Gideon, we are obsessed and perhaps quite rightly between the distribution of wealth, as you put it. Can we make an effective argument that says wealth inequality is the price we pay for greater global prosperity? I think that that is the basic bargain that capitalism makes, right? The unequal distribution of riches rather than the equal distribution of poverty, as Churchill put it. But that doesn't mean that the policies that we have at the national level and other levels don't affect just how much of the share goes to the rich. And what people like Piketty and everybody else has basically shown is that over the last couple of generations, as the global economy has done well, as poor people in the developing world have done extremely well, as rich people have done well, middle and working classes in the advanced industrial world have not. They have not tended to see many of the benefits from growth, even in their countries. And yeah. so they have a legitimate right to say, wait a second, what about us? And the question has to be, how do you get the benefits that, that accrue to the economy as a whole to be delivered to the population as a whole? Well, let's talk about the risks. I remember one of the final addresses from Margaret Thatcher in Parliament, and, and essentially she made one a very effective argument that there were elements of the left, the far left, that would be happier if the gap was smaller and everyone was poorer. So the gap between the rich and the poor was smaller, but ultimately, if everyone was poorer, there would be elements of the left that would still be happy with that outcome. How do we avoid the pendulum swinging aggressively to the left to bring the wealth inequality gap all the way in without making a country poorer? Well, I would suggest that the easiest way to take uh, the wind out of the sails of the socialists would be for the capitalists to pay a little bit more concern uh, to distributional effects and to actually have, you could put it this way, social democracy is the price of avoiding socialism. In your new issue, do you address the new socialism that everyone's ranting and raving about now? We address aspects about it. So, for example, one of the main, our main arguments used against greater social spending is that you can't have uh, any increased deficit or debt. And there's an interesting piece in the Jason issue Furman's by and, Furman yeah, and Summers, yeah, Larry yeah, Furman yeah. and uh, sorry, Larry uh, Summers and Jason Furman, arguing that you know. Deficits are not so huge. What really matters is, are they going up even faster than you can afford uh, to deal with them? And that, you know, essentially keeping, we don't need to reduce debt dramatically at this particular time. We need to keep things in control, they argue. And so it's, it's not just a question of how do you do this, but what are the downfalls? What are the real pitfalls like Jonathan was talking about? Yeah. What are the dangers you have to be really aware of? And yeah, taking too much money and spending too much and constricting the economy too much uh, would be a problem. But if your publics reject the entire framework of laissez-faire capitalism on which your economy is based, the results will be even more disruptive. Do you see a risk of that? I see a risk that silly leftism will take advantage of the opportunity created by silly rightism and that uh, oh, sensible I, policies I, I, I in the feel middle. myself stealing phrases as we go. What, leftism? It's just silly rightism. If capitalists can't reform themselves, socialists will get the political power to do what they want. Yeah. Do you believe that can happen in a country like America? I think you see it happening right now. When centrist policies on the economy don't get uh, a good hearing uh, and, and, and other you know, rich people's policies just get run the way people want it, then you end up getting popular pushback in a way that's often economically illiterate. Well, when I say working, what I mean what's effective with the electorate, because at the midterms, the Democrats didn't take this radical left-wing approach to the midterms, and their approach, their centrist approach, was quite effective in the House. 
you know, it's interesting to see what exactly the Democratic Party's agenda will be, how radical they actually are. We're giving a few, a lot of attention. To We're letting a, few a couple benchers. of names. We're letting a couple of names completely yeah, well, dominate and they're, and they're the discussion. And they're that are not necessarily, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer don't seem to me like they're going to be leading uh, a bunch of guillotine uh, crowds uh, to. Well, to we Wall just Street saw this soon. on a, on the Palestine-Israeli matter in the last 24 hours. Do you have a confidence that we will have a political process? that melds to the middle as we go through the primary season Confidence, and the conventions? No. Hope, yes. Hope, okay. Hope and audacity with Gideon uh, Rose. I can't say enough about the new nationalism, the new issue of Foreign Affairs magazine, a number of, uh, of articles cited there. One I'd mentioned we didn't even get to, Rushir Sharma, definitive on emerging markets, writing with great passion about India as well. That'll be the first article I'll read in this new uh, issue. This is a joy for Paul Sweeney and I. We are gourmands of a certain level. And we know that if you're with Austin Goolsby of the Booth School, the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, you can wander out to north of the Permian Basin, south of the Panhandle, to scenic Lubbock, Texas, for Aunt Trina's lasagna. And it's a wonderful lesson on what we'll do within our trade policy of the United States of America. Austin, it's classic Goolsby 101. You're at the Booth School. You're screaming at a bunch of over-smart educators, and you're saying, hey, it's about Aunt Trina's lasagna. Discuss. Yeah, well, my, my Aunt Trina and, and my Uncle Bob, they moved to Abilene, where my parents are. But at that time, uh, my Aunt Trina's lasagna, or maybe it was pot roast, stuffed down the sink in their kitchen, clogged the drain. My uncle goes and gets a product since banned called The Bomb, which combination <laughs> of plunger and firearm, and he blows the clog out of that drain but of course they live in a yeah. converted apartment so he blows it not to the sewer but blows it into the neighbor's drain and all over the kitchen of the neighbors oh <laughs> this is great no, and uh, so my analogy was that that is what's wrong okay. with tariffs because you blow it out of the steel industry, but you just blow it onto the auto industry or, or something. Well, bring this over seriously, Professor Goldsby, to Booth School in the University of Chicago and one Jacob Viner of 1948. I mean, with the bomb down the drain, are we heading towards mercantilism, Goldsby style? Yeah, uh, gee, wait, don't say Goldsby style. That's terrible. If we are, it certainly feels many days like that's what what the president has in mind. That he, that he kind of wants to go back to some mercantilist enterprise for the United States, and uh, I wish somebody would would explain to him the way the way mercantilism went away is because mercantilism doesn't work, uh, and so I think that's one of the bigger risks that we face is that that we could spiral into some trade war situation with China and drive both of us into recession. Um, but hopefully not. Look, uh, you know, maybe they can find some way, like with NAFTA, like they did with Europe, that they they basically just backed away. They they had a lot of bluster. Ah, we're going to beat you up. We're going to put in tariffs. But at the end of the day, 
they just kind of backed away and moved on. And so I, that, that's what I'm hoping happens. So, so Professor Goolsby, the U.S. trade delegation is in China this week. Um, what do you think is a realistic negotiated uh, agreement between the two sides at this point? The reason that's hard to say is I don't think that there's any substantive agreement that that is that is material uh, to the to the economy or to our trade that that they can negotiate. So the the answer to that question is whatever gets the president to stop threatening a trade war. And if that means vague commitments on the part of China that in the future they'll buy more stuff and you know, they'll make some announcement of things that they largely already agreed to, which is the style of the, of the quote-unquote new NAFTA and was certainly the style of the quote-unquote deals uh, with Europe where they agreed only to keep negotiating with a certain goal in mind. I think something like that would be realistic. I think any let, – let's say they went there and there was a the lightning struck and there was a meeting of minds and they said, ah, we've got a new comprehensive trade agreement. They would not be able to pass such an agreement through Congress in the next two years. So uh, in a way, the, the most expansive things, there's no way it's realistic. Who, in your opinion, is is which side is has more incentive to get a deal done? We see, we know the political ramifications on our side, but we also know the economic uh, issues affecting China. Their growth is slowing, and one could argue that they certainly need do not need a trade war. So, who has the most incentive? Well, you know, like like I always say, every day without a trade war is a good day for America. Um, maybe there they have more incentive, but but it is. The situation where we threaten to burn their house down, they threaten to burn our house down, and yeah. we say, "Oh, but our house is smaller than your house, so you know you you have you're in a worse position than us." Yes, maybe that's a relatively worse position, but both of right. our houses would be burnt down. So this, I just think this mercantilist mentality right. is is the wrong approach, and it doesn't take into account the way business works in America or around the world. So if you, if you escalate the disputes like this with China, there's a whole bunch of American manufacturing companies that get a lot of their, you know, the power supply that goes into the machine that's being made in the United States, the power supply is coming from China. So if you go to start throwing tariffs in, you will find exactly what happened with steel and aluminum, which is a whole bunch of people in the United States say, wait, you were doing this to help the U.S., but actually we have to shut down production and lay people off yeah. because those are our inputs. So uh, I just well, people need to just take one step back and think. There's nothing wrong with trying to get trying to change China's behavior in some way that you want them to. The question is, is getting, jumping up and down, having a tantrum, screaming and trying okay. to shove their face in it, is that going to work? And I think that's, that's much more likely to do the opposite of work, that China agree to publicly do some, some vague promises, but then turn around 
and mess with the yeah. United States using the channels they have, but on a which ma- might be help North Korea, which might be investigate Apple and stop people buying iPhones. You know, there's a whole bunch of channels. But Austin, on a mathy basis, I mean, all of the equations, the fancy pants algebraic equations in Opsfeld Rogoff, which I'm sure you read cover to cover at Yale or MIT. I mean, any graduate level textbook, there's lots of time functions within the equations. May I respectfully suggest our time functions and our presidential time function is a little bit different than the longer time functions of China? Yeah, but you look, maybe I'm mean, the, the great economist Bob Solo, my my former teacher, yeah. uh, said that it, at the heart, every explanation of growth goes from the equations that goes down in a blaze of amateur sociology. And I'm whatever I say about that uh, statement of the what's a time function, what's a time horizon, their horizon the Chinese versus the U.S. Yeah. Is going to go down in a blaze of amateur sociology. Okay, but but Austin, that this said, is... I, I I agree. In my, I'm not a super expert, but I was involved in the in the S and E D meetings with China, and uh, yeah. and in the Obama administration, we negotiated multiple things with China. They do have a long view, and you can, my my experience is public humiliation of the Chinese to try to get them to capitulate um, is is really quite self-defeating. We are out of time, but Austin, we got to continue this conversation. This is absolutely brilliant. Austin Goolsby, of course, of Yale, MIT, and of course, it's Booth School Chicago. Uh, Right now, it's a small school, uh, (laughs) Paul, out in Chicago. Some of the absolute best economists coming out of that school for generations. And the sports teams are awesome as well. (laughs) Austin Goolsby, thank you uh, so much. He's a former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.